0: Samuel. And in recent weeks, we've seen the people of Israel reject God as their king. And in God's place, they demanded a king like all the other nations. What they wanted was a man they could put their hope in, a man who would lead them and fight their battles for them, And we noticed it wasn't the request for a king that was wrong. It was the people's motivation that was wrong. They wanted to be free from God's rule. That's what they were really asking. They were asking for a king who would replace God. But last week we saw that is not going to happen. Last week we were introduced to a man called Saul. And through Samuel, God told Saul he was going to become Israel's king. In fact, Samuel actually anointed him as king. He did that privately. And as he did, he made it clear to Saul, you're to be a king under God's authority. You're to rule according to God's word. Now, by the end of our passage last week, no one knew about this except God. Samuel and Saul the people of Israel are still in the dark and in fact they're probably a little bit nervous the last time Samuel spoke to the people of Israel was right after they had insisted on having a human king Samuel tried to warn them on that occasion he told them it was not going to turn out how they expected but the end of chapter 8 told us they refused to listen to Samuel. And Samuel responded by saying, "Everyone go back to your own time." That's how it was left. And Israel has not heard from Samuel since. They don't know Saul has been chosen as king. So imagine what the Israelites are thinking. Samuel is hopping mad. Maybe we pushed it too far with him. What's going to happen? What judgment is Samuel cooking up for us? That's the context where our passage this morning picks up. We're going to begin at chapter 10, verse 17, and we'll read through to chapter 11, verse 13. If you're using the church Bible, that's page 280, and in the large print, page 430. Chapter 10, verse 17, and I'll read through to 11, verse 13. Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah and said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But now you have rejected your God, who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities. And you have said, no, appoint a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. When Samuel had made all Israel come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan. And Matri's clan was taken. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord. Has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies. They ran and brought him out. And as he stood among the people... He was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, Long live the king! Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Then Samuel dismissed the people to go to their own homes. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by a valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But some scoundrels said, How can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts. But Saul kept silent. Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us, and we will be subject to you. But Nahash the Ammonite replied, I will make a treaty with you, only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you, and so bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days so that we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud. Just then Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen. And he asked, what is wrong with everyone? Why are they weeping? Then they repeated to him what the man of Jabesh had said. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people. And they came out together as one. When Saul mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000 and those of Judah 30,000. They told the messengers who had come, say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be rescued. When the messengers went and reported this to the men of Jabesh, they were elated They said to the Ammonites, tomorrow we will surrender to you and you can do to us whatever you like. The next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. The people then said to Samuel, Who was it that asked, shall Saul reign over us? Turn these men over to us so that we may put them to death. But Saul said, no one will be put to death today. For this day the Lord has rescued Israel. This is God's word. This passage divides into two. First of all, in chapter 10, verses 17 to 27, we find a surprising grace and a despised king. Now, there's nothing surprising about the way this passage starts. Israel knew Samuel was angry when he sent them away back in chapter 8. I don't think it's a surprise to them when Samuel summons them to this place called Mizpah and he essentially reads them the riot act. Look in the middle of verse 18. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities. And you have said, no, appoint a king over us. Samuel stands up and he confronts Israel with her rebellion. She has rejected her savior, the God who delivered her from slavery down in Egypt and from every other enemy that she's had. And with that introduction to the day's events, Samuel's next instructions must have been scary to the Israelites. In the middle of verse 19, so now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. Well, what's scary about that? Well, every Israelite would have known about the last time those instructions were given. Back in the book of Joshua, an Israelite called Achan disobeyed God. He secretly stole and kept things God had said were to be destroyed. Achan took them and he hid them in his tent. And God used the same process to lead Joshua to the guilty man. Israel was made up of 12 tribes and within each tribe there were clans. And within each clan then there were families. And by some method that is not explained to us, God had Joshua draw lots, but like drawing straws, and God used that process to lead Joshua finally to Achan. And the outcome was, Achan was stoned to death for his rebellion, and his remains were burnt. That incident was a big deal in Israel's history. So now, imagine what the Israelites are thinking here. When Samuel says, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. They're thinking, here we go again. They're expecting God's judgment to fall. But it doesn't. Instead, Israel gets the king it asked for. Although he has to be dragged to the celebration. During the selection process, Saul had run off and hid. He knew before it started he was going to be the one picked. And apparently he's not excited about being picked. So now we've learned something else about Saul. Last week we learned he was tall and handsome. Now we learn he's a timid man. He's impressive looking but he's a bit of a shrinking violet and it's fine to be a shrinking violet but it's not ideal for a king to be that way anyway we're told they ran and they brought him out I don't know if he was kicking and screaming or not but they get him there and when he does arrive on stage everyone can see immediately he's a physically impressive guy And that in itself is enough to win them over. Look in the middle of verse 23. As he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, Long live the king. This day has taken a pretty surprising turn. Instead of being hit with God's judgment, Israel is being presented with a king. And they're impressed. Look at that guy. He's huge. Finally, we have a real king. We have someone we can look up to. Someone to make our enemies think twice about messing with us. And notice verse 24 says, Then the people shouted, Long live the king.'" There's no suggestion here of any division among the people. There are no naysayers at this point. That's something to take note of because before the day is over, there will be naysayers and dissenters. We've just been told everyone's impressed by Saul's physical appearance. But before these people go home, some of them will despise him. And the reason for that is what happens next, in verse 25. Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Before the Lord means in the sanctuary where the Lord was worshipped at that time. What has just happened here is that all Israel has been told what Saul himself was told last week. He is to be a king under God's authority. He's to be caretaker of God's kingdom. How do we know that's what Samuel tells them? We know it because the rights and duties of kingship were set out long before this, back in the book of Deuteronomy. Samuel is not making this up on the spot. God had always planned for Israel to have a king. And the king's first duty, according to Deuteronomy, was to make a copy of God's law. Then he was to revere the Lord and follow his law. So this is what's just happened. Samuel has presented Israel with her new king. Then he has impressed on the people publicly what he impressed on Saul privately. Saul's kingship is to be one of revering the Lord and following his law. This is God's grace. Israel has rebelled, but she's being given another chance. Israel wanted a king like the kings of all the other nations. But here God says, okay, here's your new king but he is not to be like the kings of the other nations. Things are not working out as Israel wanted, but this is God's grace. He could have brought judgment and destroyed them here at Mizpah, but he gives them the chance of a fresh start. If Israel and her new king will live under God's kingship, then all will be well. That's Samuel's message to Israel. And that explains why Israel is now divided. When Saul was first presented to them, they all shouted, long live the king. But now, after the full picture has been laid out for them, there is division. Saul has some supporters. Verse 26 calls them valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But there are also those who despise him. And their comment is, in verse 27, how can this fellow save us? It's not really a question. They are quite sure he can't save them. They liked Saul until they heard he was to be a king under God. Now they despise him. And actually, they're despising God. They wanted to be free of God, and things are not working out as they wanted. At this point in time, Saul is the king God has chosen. He's not God's ideal king. That king will come along after Saul. But nevertheless, God has chosen Saul. And this moment is a gracious opportunity for the people. They can be a king and a people who revere the Lord and follow his ways. They have a choice to make. And this situation in Israel is a very faint preview of something that happened much later in Israel's history. Much later, another king was presented publicly to the people. When Jesus of Nazareth was baptized in front of the Israelites, God said of him, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And Jesus went on to live a life no one else had ever lived. He revered the Lord and followed his law. And he did it perfectly. It was a gracious opportunity for Israel. They could unite under God's king. But they despised him. Not all of them, some did follow him. But after a few years, the Jews took Jesus to the Roman governor, Pilate. And when Pilate said to them, here is your king, the people shouted, take him away, crucify him. They despised him. At first, they had been impressed by his miracles. But they soon discovered he wasn't the kind of king they wanted. They wanted him to lead them into battle. But what Jesus had done was call them to acknowledge their sin and turn to God. Today, God is still presenting his king. He presents his king to you and me. It's an opportunity you and I do not deserve. It's grace. God points us to the risen Jesus and he says to us, do you see the man I have chosen? There is no one like him. Yes, you have rebelled against me and you have offended me. But come under the reign of my king, And you will be reconciled to me. Today, some of us have a choice to make. Will you accept God's king and follow him? Or will you despise him and turn away? Back in Israel, chapter 10 ends with an uncertain situation. Saul has been presented as king, but he hasn't yet been installed as king. He hasn't started to reign yet. It's all a bit up in the air. And Samuel sends everyone home. They disperse, including Saul. We're told that he goes to his home in Gibeah. And everyone is left waiting to see what happens. And what happens is that an enemy comes and brings things to a crisis point. What we find next is an arrogant enemy and a surprising savior. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us and we will be subject to you. Jabesh-Gilead is an out-of-the-way place. It's a bit isolated. It's separated from the rest of Israel by the Jordan River. There is the main part of Israel. There's the Jordan River, and then across the Jordan is Jabesh. And apparently at this time, Nahash the Ammonite was picking off some of these isolated Israelite settlements. One writer says he was on a binge of terror at this time. And when he sets up a siege against Jabesh, these people don't want any trouble. They say to him, essentially, you can be our king if you want. Just don't hurt us, please. But look how he replies to them in verse 2. I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you, and so bring disgrace on all Israel. What he actually says is, I will make a treaty with you like this. I'll gouge out your right eyes. In other words, he's not interested in making a treaty at all. He wants to hurt and humiliate these people. As he says himself, his intention is to bring disgrace on all Israel. He hates God's people. And he's an amazingly arrogant man. When the people of Jabesh ask for seven days respite so they can ask the rest of Israel for help, apparently Nahash says, go ahead. See who you can round up. It'll just make things more fun for me. He's so sure of himself, he's going to play with these people the way a cat plays with a mouse. Sure, I can wait. Go and bring your friends back with you. I'll get to gouge all your eyes out. And when the messengers do go out, we get a sense now of how much Israel thinks of their new king Saul. We discover they're not thinking of him at all. Look at verse 4. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud. Just then Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen. And he asked, what is wrong with everyone? Why are they weeping? Then they repeated to him what the man of Jabesh had said. Notice, as the messengers spread out across Israel and come to Gibeah, The people's response is just to dissolve in tears. Apparently, they don't think Saul has anything to offer in this situation. No one even thinks to go and get him back from the fields so he can hear what's going on. It seems that Saul has gone back to working on the family farm at this point. And even when he comes back from the fields, he has to ask the people what's going on. Someone has said, Israel has gone from asking, how can this man save us, to giving this man no thought at all. We might wonder, where are the valiant men who accompanied Saul at the end of chapter 10? They don't seem to be around anymore. Maybe they have lost hope in him too. In any case, it doesn't seem that anyone was expecting what happens next the big guy who couldn't find his dad's donkeys, who ran and hid at his own coronation, the king Israel is despising, suddenly turns into Israel's powerful savior. And the transformation is explained for us in verse six. When Saul heard their words, the spirit of God came powerfully upon him and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Saul has become an instrument in God's hands. In fact, it's a good job he's becoming king, because there'll be no job for him in the farm after this. Last week, he lost the donkeys, and now he cuts up the oxen. And he posts them around Israel. It's a very unusual approach. But it convinces Israel they'd better not mess with Saul. And the end of verse 7 says, Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out together as one. In fact, a huge army assembles at Bezek. And Saul sends a very confident message to Jabesh Gilead in verse 9. By the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be rescued. Literally, you will be saved. It's the same word that was used at the end of chapter 10. How can this fellow save us? Well, now Saul promises to save, and he delivers on his promise. He marches his army the 20 miles from Bezek across the Jordan River to Jabesh. His army attack Nahash and his army sometime between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. That's the last watch of the night. And the people of Jabesh are saved before midday. It's a great victory. And the change in Saul has been dramatic. Up to this point, he was indecisive and timid. But now he has acted like a true king. And suddenly, Saul has a hero's following. Look at verse 12. The people then said to Samuel, Who was it that asked, shall Saul reign over us? Turn these men over to us, so that we may put them to death. You might wonder where these supporters were a couple of days ago. And the men they want to kill are the despisers from chapter 10. The ones who said, how can this fellow save us? But this is Saul's finest hour. He will never get better than this. And he will never be more like a true king than when he says in verse 13... No one will be put to death today. For this day, the Lord has rescued Israel. Saul knows this was the Lord's victory. He knows this is a day of salvation. As God's king, he has been sent to save, it's a day of grace. Saul overturned everyone's expectations. God saved his people through a man who didn't seem capable of saving anyone. And that is the pattern of God's salvation. Many years later, the Apostle Paul wrote this to God's people in the city of Corinth. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. That's the pattern of God's salvation. And the greatest example of God showing power through weakness was Jesus' death on the cross. As Jesus hung there, it looked for all the world like weakness and defeat. The notice above his head said that he was a king. But it certainly didn't look like it. We're told the onlookers mocked him that day. He's a king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Others said, let him see of himself if he's God's Messiah. Literally, that means God's anointed one. One of those crucified with him said... Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. If those mockers had looked back on their own history, they would have seen a pattern. God brings salvation through despised saviors. He does great things through weakness. They should have known. This man they were despising was bringing salvation. Not by coming down from the cross, but by staying on the cross. His death was winning deliverance for guilty sinners. Saul was not a great king. In fact, overall, he wasn't even a good king. But for a time, he was God's chosen king. And here, in his finest hour, he teaches us what God's true king is like. The world looks at God's king and they despise him. How can he save me? What can he possibly do for me? That's how many people look at Jesus today. He's irrelevant. He's not what we need. But God won a great victory through his despised king. He defeated not Nahash the Ammonite. Jesus defeated the greatest enemies, Satan and sin and death and hell. And he won that victory not by cutting up oxen to rally the troops, No, Jesus won by letting his own body be cut and torn. And by his death, he won. Today, he offers us the benefits of his victory, even to us who have despised him. That's good news. God's king gives life. We're going to praise him now as we remember that he was a man of sorrows. Let's stand to sing, Man of Sorrows, what a name! And then, Man of Sorrows, Lamb of God.